your Bibles this morning and turn to the Old Testament book of Ruth. We're going to look at the fourth chapter and uh, finish off that book. We've been going through that the last several weeks. And uh, it is a great uh, Old Testament narrative that has New Testament implications. And Ruth, we're in the fourth chapter And uh, before we begin, uh, let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege uh, that you have given me uh, these many years of standing behind this desk and opening up your word and sharing truths uh, that are helpful, uh, truths that have eternal uh, implications, and nothing is more true uh, than the book of Ruth. Uh, In eternal consequences to ignore Uh, the truths that are in uh, this book. I pray that uh, you would speak to our hearts this morning, that you would meet needs, every need of everyone in the room. I can't do that. Uh, Humanly speaking, that would be impossible. Uh, But you know every heart and you know every need. And uh, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help uh, folks understand, be blessed, be encouraged uh, by uh, this, uh, this ancient text as we look to it for current day applications. And we'll thank you for what you do this morning. It is in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Just by a bit of review, Elimelech was in the land of uh, Bethlehem, Judah, as a Jewish man, and there was a famine in the land, and he saw it best to take himself and his two children, Malan and Chilion, and his wife, Naomi, and they left the land of Bethlehem, Judah, the land of bread, by definition, and they went uh, to Moab. And, uh, but as I mentioned uh, several weeks ago, long before he left, uh, he left the place where God wanted him to be, and he went to the world, idolatrous nation of the Moabites, he had become bitter because his two children, Malan and Chilion, their names... They're probably about 10 years of age when they left Bethlehem, Judah. So when they were born, 10 years before he left, he named them Malan and Chilion. One means sickly, the other means tiny. Uh, So basically what he did, he took a little baby and he looked at that baby and said, man, you you look sick. And that's what he named the child. And he said, man, you are, uh, looked at his second born child and said, man, you are wasting, a waste, a waste. And that's what he named him. Uh, And and ten years later, he left the place where God wanted him to be and went to, again, Moabite, Moabite nation, a place of idolatry, a place of wickedness. <clears throat> ten years later, his boys that were sickly and pining had at least going for them, uh, enough for them that now at twenty, roughly 20 years of age, uh, they, they found gals uh, that would marry them. So they couldn't have been... Too sickly, too pining, but his naming of the children indicated the status of his heart and that he had lost touch with the fact that God has a plan for everybody's life and their life. And he had become discouraged ten years before he left. And so he's gone for ten years and he's not going back. He had gone there, quote, I'm sure he sold it to his wife, Naomi, by saying, we're just going here till the famine is over. But they stayed long beyond the famine. <clears throat> and they, weren't, they weren't going back. And uh, he died. 
and then Malan and, and, Malan and Chilean, uh, the boys died. And so you've got Naomi and you've got Ruth and Orpha, the wives of <clears throat> uh, Malan and Chilean. Uh, they're all widows in the land of Moab. Naomi says, I, I'm going back. I'm going back. The famine is over. Uh, there's things going on back home. There's nothing here. I'm going back. Ruth and Orpha look at Naomi and say, oh, we're going to go with you. And Naomi says, what? why would you do that? There's nothing there for you. And again, imagine, again, from a Christian perspective, you've got a friend, and uh, that friend, uh, that gal, is, she's unsafe. She's in a heathen nation. She's in the land of Moab, a land of idolatry. There is no hope in idolatry. But you, knowing Christ as your Savior, knowing salvation, knowing forgiveness, look at that person and say, you stay in a place where you are certain never to hear the gospel, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that there is hope in salvation. You stay there and go to hell. As opposed to going with me and uh, learning about Christ and going to heaven. Wow. But that's where Naomi was. She was bitter. And she went back to Bethlehem, Judah, and they said, boy, isn't this Naomi? And she said, man, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for I am bitter. I'm bitter. Ruth says to Naomi, I'm going back with you. Chapter 1, a very classic text, whether thou goest, I will go, whether thou lodgest, I will lodge, thy people shall be my people, thy God, my God. And Orpha says, cool, I didn't really want to go with you anyways, I'm staying here. Now that's important because both Ruth and Orpha, through their husbands, Malan and Chilion, are mentioned in chapter 4. Let's start reading at verse 1. Uh, we, left, uh, we left them last week, uh, or two weeks ago. Uh, Ruth is about to be uh, redeemed by Boaz, but there is a near kinsman. And so Boaz is going to the gate where they conduct business, and he's going to look for the, for the nearer kinsman than him. And that's where we are in chapter 4. Boaz went up to the gate and sat him down there. And behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such an one, uh, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. And these ten men are going to hear this. It's not a legal, it's not a dispute. It's a, it's a business transaction that's going to take place. The question that Boaz is going to propose to this near kinsman is, will you redeem the estate of Elimelech? Ruth, Orpha, Naomi could not redeem that. They did not have the ability to redeem that. When God gave the land to a family, it had to stay in the family, the male family. Naomi, by losing her husband, wasn't wasn't part of that anymore. It be it fell on Malan and Chilion to be the heir of that land. And when all the male children were gone, there was no hope that Ruth, Orpha, Naomi 
could keep that land. No chance. They needed they needed a redeemer. They needed a man that would step forward and say, I'm willing to do that. Because it had to stay, it was God's law, that that land had to stay with that tribe. So you had 12 tribes of Israel. They had tribes. And that those tribes took the, their portion of the inheritance and they gave it to families. And those families gave it to the individual family members. And the lineage of that land passed on <clears throat> to the male heirs. There's no male heir. So, so what is going to happen? <clears throat> Verse 3. And he said unto the kinsmen, Naomi, that is come out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is none to redeem it besides thee, and I am after thee. And he said, the near kinsman, I will redeem it. He looks at this, he's looking at it strictly from a business perspective. Again, when his job as a redeemer is to take uh, Ruth and raise up a male heir. Now, he doesn't know about Ruth yet. He just knows that there is land that needs to stay in the tribe. And so he says, uh, he's there thinking, Boaz says, hey, there's this land. It needs to be redeemed so it stays in our tribe. I am a kinsman. You are a near kinsman. Here is the land. And he's looking. He said, now, that's a nice piece of property. And if if I buy that, and... uh, Boy, it's it's got the trees cleared, and it had it had weed on it this year, and it was a bumper crop. And uh, I'm going to buy that, and I'm going to I'm going to plant it next year, and uh, we're going to make we're going to make money on that right now. And when I die, it's going to pass on to my boys. Boy, this is going to be great for my inheritance. I will redeem it. <clears throat> Verse five. Then said Boaz, oh, hold, hold on, hold on, uh, there, there's something else. What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And the kinsman said, uh, can't, I cannot do that. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar my own inheritance. Redeem it. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. So people look at this and they speculate what's going on in this guy's life. He looks at it from a a merely financial perspective and he says, this piece of property, I can take that for myself. I can pay the price, redeem the land and have it for my own, and pass it on to my male heirs. But when he learns that there is Ruth, then he's got to take her to be his wife so that she can have a a child. She has a male heir. Then that land no longer goes to his boys. That land is going to go to Ruth's male child. And he starts thinking, if, if if I take m- my money and buy this land 
and it doesn't benefit my children. Matter of fact, that could harm my children because I am taking of their inheritance my money that would normally go to them and I'm buying this land that they can no longer get a financial benefit from because the financial benefit is going to go to Ruth's heirs. And he said, I, I can't do that. I can't hurt my own family to help Ruth. I won't do that. <clears throat> merely, merely financial. Verse 7. Now, this was a manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing for to confirm all things a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and that this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore, the kinsman said unto Boaz, buy it for thee. And, he, and he, so he drew off his shoe, and Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, your witnesses this day, that I have bought all that was Elimelech's, and all that was Chilean's, and all that was Malan's of the hand of Naomi. We'll come back to verse 9 in just a moment, but that is... Huge, what he has just said. <clears throat> Verse 10. Moreover, Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of Malan, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, uh, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. Now the Lord make the woman that has come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which uh, too did build the house of Israel, and do thou worthily in Ephrata, and be famous in Bethlehem, and let the house be like the house of Pharaoh, whom Tamar bare unto Judah of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and he was his wife, and when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the woman said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And his name was. You go to the book of Matthew and you read of the lineage of Jesus Christ and you'll find Ruth. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. And the woman, and the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they call his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Pharaohs. Pharaohs begat Hezron, Hezron begat Ram, Ram begat Abinadad, Abinadad begat Nation, Nation begat Solomon, and Solomon begat Boaz, and Boaz begat Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. This is the lineage of Christ. And just about the time you think your life is over and there's no hope, now Ruth is put in the generations. Uh, also interesting in the generations, if you study this, we'll not spend a lot of time on this, there are ten generations. Deuteronomy chapter 23 said uh, that uh, there had to be ten generations uh, before an uh, outsider, Moabite, was allowed into, uh, into the land, into a lineage. And there are ten generations there uh, fulfilling that Deuteronomy uh, requirement as well. Just, just kind of interesting. <clears throat> uh, Boaz was a kinsman. He had the right uh, to redeem. But again, Ruth and Orpha and Naomi were helpless. They were powerless to do this on their own. They needed a male heir to, to keep that in the, uh, within the twelve tribes of Judah. Just, it just had to be done. <clears throat> they needed someone who was willing to redeem. They needed someone who was able to redeem. 
And so I've titled this chapter, Time for a Business Trip to the Gate. Because when you realize that there's something that needs to be done, uh, you, you go to the gate. And my encouragement to you this morning is to take a business trip uh, to the gate, to the cross of Calvary, to Christ. Because he obviously is able to redeem you. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. <clears throat> Boaz was a near kinsman. He had the right to redeem. He had, uh, uh, otherwise this was none of his business. Do you know people that stick their nose in somebody else's business? It's a, this is not your family. This is not your family. Uh, your, your nose, your business, your opinion ends at, at the threshold of my house. Uh, don't, don't be coming in here and telling me how to run my house. It's not, it's not your place to do so. But he was a kinsman, so it became his business. People could talk about what to do. They could talk about what needed to be done, but they were not in a position to do it. But Boaz was. Uh, Boaz was. <clears throat> Jesus Christ is our near kinsman. 2,000 years ago, he was born in Bethlehem into the human race, which gave him the ability to step into our business over the threshold in our door and say, listen, folks, you need redeem. Your, your estate is a mess. And there's a problem. It's called sin. And the, the penalty of sin is a, a place called hell. And that's not a good place to go. And so you need to be redeemed. The question is, will you come to Christ for that redemption. Ruth could have said, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't want you. She could have done that. Orpha did that. Orpha's not here. Orpha's not uh, benefiting from this redemption. She could have, but uh, she's not. She's not there. <clears throat> uh, that near kinsman refused uh, to marry Ruth. Uh, again, people speculate why he did that. Uh, because he was cursed? Or because she came from a cursed nation? Moab? Possible. Uh, because he was married. Well, that's, that's possible. Uh, but more than likely, he was widowed. That, and Boaz knew that. That he was able to do that. That because his wife had passed away, that he had the ability to take Ruth uh, to be his wife. And that's the more likely scenario. Uh, but, <clears throat> again, his approach to it was all financial. And, and so he looks at Boaz and says, Boaz not married. He doesn't have any male kin to pass his inheritance on to. Uh, and, man, he's going to make a boatload of money off of those fields that, he, that he's going to redeem. And, uh, huh. boy, he's, he's making a good financial transaction assuming that Boaz was in it just for the money. What he failed to realize was that Ruth had been in the field. Boaz had watched over her. He had said to the men in chapter 1 and chapter 2, uh, hey, you drop some, uh, chapter 2, drop some handfuls on purpose in front of her, and don't you touch her, and don't you mess with her, and don't you give her a hard time, and you make sure that you draw water for her. Uh, he, had, he had already said, man, that's a girl I'd like to get to know. <clears throat> but... Uh, he was a little bit older, and she was a little bit younger. Uh, he was uh, uh, probably not, you know, you look in the mirror in the morning and you say, man, man, I, I don't look good. I did not look good. And Ruth was a, a pretty girl. Uh, from the text, we, we see that. <clears throat> and uh, Ruth uh, said, you know what? Uh, here's a guy that can redeem me. 
and she she's from Moab, so she would not necessarily be interested in the redemption part of it. <clears throat> and Boaz said to her when she said, "Hey, uh, I my family, my inheritance, I need to be redeemed. I, I need that. I need that help. Will you help us? You're in a position to do that." Uh, Naomi has told me that you're a near kinsman. Would you do the part of the kinsman redeemer? <clears throat> Boaz looked at her and said, wow, <laughs> I know I'm not a lot to look at. And uh, you could have gone after the younger, younger guys. You, you could have done that, but you didn't. And uh, he's, he talked. Again, the near kinsman looks at Boaz no doubt, because that's what his whole approach was from a financial perspective. Whereas Boaz is looking at Ruth out of the eyes of love. And what a, what a, different, what a different perspective that gives us. Why did Christ, people ask me this question all the time. If uh, God knew <clears throat> that we were going to sin, and he did. When he created the world, and he did. Then why did he create us? Because God, God loves you. God knew that you were going to be born. And God knew that you were going to struggle. And God knew that you were going to have issues. And God knew that you were going to get into trouble. And yet, he, he still created you because he loves you. Don't discount the love factor in the kinsman narrative of the book of Ruth. Boaz is not doing this strictly out of a financial benefit. He's doing it because he loves Ruth. God made you, created you, because he loves you. And God wants to have a relationship with you, but like Boaz to Ruth, he's not going to force himself on you. He's there. He's able to redeem you, but you have to come to him and say, I need to be redeemed. Will you do the part? Of the kinsman redeemer. And Christ will. But he's not going to force that. Boaz is not forcing that on Ruth. Boaz didn't come to Ruth. Ruth came to Boaz and said. I need to be redeemed. I need help. I'm in desperate strait. You're the one to do it. Will you do it? And Boaz said uh, that, that he would. Many uh, people fail to see God's love in creation. <clears throat> and so I try to bring that home to something that we all understand. If you are a parent in the room, or if you've ever had children, and you know that when you had that child, uh, you had that child because you, you loved them. <clears throat> and you raised them, and they went to school. And nobody, no parent, at least not a parent with any amount of wisdom, thinks, I am going to have the perfect child. And children are not perfect. Uh, children cry. Uh, they, when they're little, they mess diapers. Uh, they, uh, they wake up every three hours or more uh, in the middle of the night, which is why I say that's why God gave babies to young people and not to old people, because old people, we, we need our sleep at night. And if you've ever looked at... Michael, Michael will be here for the 11 o'clock service. You look at Mike. He, they got a new little one at home, and Mike looks like he's been, he's been through the ringer. Uh, he just does. He looks tired, and uh, <clears throat> um, 
just, just kind of interesting. So um, we know as parents that this child is going to get into trouble. We know this child is going to cry in the middle of the night. We know that this child is going to mess diapers. We know that this child is going to go to school and get into trouble. One of my first report cards came home, and the teacher would write notes on the back, and the note said this. Philip is very sociable. He likes to talk to everyone. He needs to learn to do that at the appropriate time. Uh, which, which said to my dad, uh, that guy's got a big mouth and he won't be quiet in class when he's supposed to be uh, listening to the teacher teach a class. That was me. <clears throat> uh, and, and so we know that child's going to get into trouble. And uh, as a teenager, we know that they're going to uh, be a little stiff-necked and rebellious. And but, So why do we have children? Because we believe in the long term that that child that has cavities and breaks arms and, and has problems is going to bring us more joy than sorrow. And so we create them, that little, that little bundle of joy, out of love, knowing, looking forward to that time when that child uh, will, will, will bond with us, will uh, fellowship with us, will bring joy to us. Now think for a moment of that child that is wayward, that that goes off and does their own thing and their own way, and that breaks the child's heart. But that's not what the parent desires for that child. God created you to have a relationship with Him. And there, there are children that wander, and that breaks God's heart. Create God's creation that never come to Him for redemption, and that breaks His heart. But God loves you. God wants to have that relationship. So I look at parents and say, that's, that's why you had children. And parents still have children today. <clears throat> Here's the question. Does the relationship that you have with God, is that worth the suffering that he was going to have to go through on Calvary's cross to pay the penalty for your sin? That's a probing question. Most would drop their head and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm away from the Lord, or I've never come to Him for salvation, or I've resisted uh, His redemption. to pay the, He paid the price for my sin, and I just said, you know what, I'm going to do this on my own. I don't need you. It's kind of funny when a, child, when a little one does that. You see a parent walking down the road with their child, and they come to a uh, intersection and the parent reaches down and grabs a child's hand and that little two-year-old, what do they do? <laughs> I don't need you. And you look at that and you smile and think, that, that little guy has no idea uh, he needs that. But when they get to be 15, 16, 20, 40, 50, and they look at the Heavenly Father and say, you know, I don't, I don't need you. And I'm not, that's not funny anymore. It's not cute. It's like, man, time to grow up. You, you need God's redemption. You, you need that. There's <clears throat> California, a case out of California, a story out of California this week. A man had inherited a boatload of money from a rich aunt. She was a multi-millionaire. <clears throat> and uh, he had inherited money and had made the pay for it. He, was, uh, he got up in the morning, as he normally did. You know, I'm going to get a boatload of money, uh, but I'm still going to get up and go to work. And so he did. He went to work. 
and he came and he's on his way home and he thought, you know what? I'm going to go home today and I'm going to mow the lawn because the lawn needs mowed. And he had a kind of a big lawn and he got home and his son was mowing the lawn. His son uh, was older and uh, was married and lived across town. And it was just kind of interesting because he hadn't seen his son in years. His son had held him at arm's length. But his son was there mowing the lawn. He said, well, isn't that a nice thing? Isn't that a wonderful thing? My son is mowing the lawn. Maybe there's a chance for our relationship to be restored. And uh, he, he went on his son and said, thank you. Thank you for mowing the lawn, man. It's good to see you today. And he said, yeah, Dad, it's, it's been a long time. And uh, he said, you know, your aunt died. He said, uh, yeah, I heard that. He said, she left me. Uh, she left me money. He said, wow, oh, good, good for you. And uh, Dad said, yeah, I'm going uh, tomorrow uh, down to the lawyer's office, and they're going to read the will, and I'm going to find out how much I got. And uh, he said, cool, cool, call me when you find out. And so he went down to the lawyer's office, and the lawyer opened the will, and they read the will, and uh, his, his multi-million dollar, uh, multi-millionaire aunt left him ten grand. And so he, he went home, and he said, well, he, he was happy with that. Uh, <clears throat> wish it would have been more, right? Uh, but uh, ten, ten grand, and they the, the went to the Cat Foundation and to the uh, Save the Whale Foundation. She had all kinds of charities that she did. She went home, and uh, his son, a uh, message from his son on the meeting, she called up his son and said, hey, uh, I just got back from the lawyer's office, and uh, the, his son said, so how much you get, Dad? He said, and she left me ten grand. He said, ten grand? And it never showed up to mow the lawn again. <clears throat> What do you think he was mowing the lawn for? He was mowing the lawn because he thought that his dad was going to be a millionaire and he needed to get on the best side of dad. He wasn't doing it out of love. He was doing it for the money. And that is so like, again, the narrative. The near kinsman wasn't interested in Ruth. And he wasn't interested in the law of God that offered, gave him the ability to do something for someone else, to redeem that land of Ruth. He was just inter- interested in the financial benefit. And that's certainly human nature. But Boaz is in it for a different reason. He had the desire. God has the desire to redeem you. Boaz was a man of faith. And God, in his word, in his wisdom, had provided a way so that a family that was desperate, and that's Ruth and Naomi, that had no hope for redemption. That was Ruth and Naomi. A family that needed that land to stay in the tribe uh, could, could have that happen. And I'll just say, Jesus Christ I loved you. No one forced Boaz to go do that. No one forced Jesus Christ to go to the cross. We sing the song, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. But he didn't. He could have offered a defense to Pilate. Pilate asked him questions and said, Don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I have the ability to set you free or to send you to the cross? And Christ said, You would have no power except I gave it to you. In that biblical narrative, in the Gospels, the Bible tells us that Pilate, when he heard that, was frightened and sought for a legal way, a politically expedient way to release Christ. Uh, That didn't happen, as we all know, but Christ could have called 10,000 angels. He could have uh, had 
uh, he could have had Pilate uh, set at naught. Uh, he could have just said, you know what? Of those people, that creation of mine, that those earthlings, of those human beings, I am tired of them and I don't want to redeem them. I am not going to the cross. I am not going to do it. And that's what the near kinsman did. He said, I'm not going to do it. I don't love Ruth. I don't care for Ruth. I don't, I don't care about the property anymore. It's not, going to, it's not going to benefit me enough to redeem them. I'm not going to do that. And Christ could have done that. But he didn't. He sat there, and he didn't offer a defense. They accused him. They beat on him. They spat upon him. They crucified him. And he went to the cross. Willingly, he paid the price of the kinsman because he loves you. Jesus Christ went to the cross. That's the place where that business of sin was taken care of. What did Christ say on the cross? It is finished. It is finished. The legal requirements for the payment of sin has been met. It, it's done. Boaz is at the gate. And he said, your witnesses that I have redeemed the land today. And they said, we are witnesses. We have done that. <clears throat> now, Satan tried to distract Christ from his goal. He met him in the wilderness and those temptations. He, was, uh, he had a Herod try to kill off of the, the lineage. He tried to kill off uh, all the babies two years of age and under to try to destroy that. Uh, but he was not successful. He had close associates. He had 12 disciples. Peter, Christ is talking to the disciples and saying, listen, I must know, need to go to the cross and pay the price for sin. And Peter looked at Christ and said, no, sir. No, sir, that is not that is not going to happen. That is not the plan. You are not going to do it. We are not going to allow it. And what did Christ say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Christ put Peter's admonition right on the same level that he put Satan's temptation in the wilderness. Satan's temptation to kill all the children two years of age and under. He put that in the same category. Why? So great was God's love for you. That nothing, not Satan himself, not spiritual associates, could keep him from fulfilling his duty as a kinsman redeemer and going to the cross. There is no amount of pain and suffering that was going to deter him from going to the cross and paying that price that had to be paid in order for you and for I to be redeemed. He came prepared to pay the price. On this day, when he comes to the gate, and he, and he waits at the gate, and he calls the kinsman over, and the kinsman releases his shoe, he paid the price, and he said to the fellows, you, you are witnesses that I have paid the price that has been done today. And they said, yeah, yeah, we, we are witnesses. Came prepared. And again, Jesus Christ paid that price. <clears throat> but what was his motivation? Well, it certainly wasn't what I have to offer him. Again, his motivation was love. Uh, Tom was a substituting, not our Tom. Uh, 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 Tom was substituting 
in the second grade class. Eric was a little second grader in that class. It was just after lunchtime. And you know, uh, kids have a tendency to push the substitute teacher in ways that they wouldn't push the regular teacher. And so it's after lunch, and uh, Eric uh, took his hands, and he put them put, put under his chin, and he closed his eyes, and he, he went to sleep. And the teacher said, Eric, Eric, sit up, sit up. It's not time to sleep. Sit up. And Eric, uh, just, uh, he, he just, he, he, he behaved himself for a while and put his head back up there. And the teacher said, Eric, 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 sit up. And Eric got up and he laid down on the floor and, and went to sleep. And the a teacher went, the substitute teacher went back there and said, oh, wait, wake, wake up, Eric, wait, wake up, wake up. And, and he would not wake up. He would not get up. And the teacher, the substitute teacher looked at him and crossed his arms and said, I know you're just doing that because you want to get out of work and you're, you're lazy. You need to get up and you need to get in your chair and you need to go work. But man, he would not do it. The teacher clapped his hand and called his name and shook him. But little Eric, that little two-year-old just laid right there on the floor. So finally, uh, the, the teacher said, well, you know, maybe uh, maybe he's not asleep. Maybe he's having a medical emergency. So the teacher uh, called, the substitute teacher called the nurse. And the nurse came down and the nurse looked at the little guy uh, laying on the floor. And the nurse looked at the teacher and said, uh, he's got a discipline problem. Uh, there's nothing the matter with him. Uh, he needs to be put back in his chair and go back to work. Uh, but the teacher and the nurse uh, could not get that child uh, to wake up. So they called the principal. And the principal came in and the teacher said, you know, this child's got a discipline problem. And the nurse said, I agree. This child has a discipline problem. There's nothing matter with that kid. Uh, and he needs to get in his chair and get to work. Uh, but uh, the teacher went, uh, the, the principal went in and could not raise that child. And so they called 911. Now the fire department got there and they looked at the child and they called the child's name and they shook the child and the child would not wake up. And so finally one of the medics said, uh, hey, uh, get the, get the big needle. Let's draw some blood. And boy, I tell you what, Eric came to life. His eyes got big. He jumped up out of the air. He started crying. He said, please don't stick me with a needle. And uh, he, he was just putting it on. What was his motivation? Uh, get out of work. Get out of work. Uh, Christ's motivation in coming here wasn't get out of work. It wasn't to get rich. It was absolutely love. And he had the resources to do that. Now look at verse a nine. I told you that we would come back here and look at this for just a moment. I want you, I want you to see this because this is huge. That not only did Boaz have the right and the ability to redeem Ruth, he also had the ability to help Orpha. Notice verse nine. Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, "Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought." All that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilean's, that's Orpha's husband, and all that was Malan's, that's Ruth's husband, of the hand of Naomi. Orpha could have been the recipient of redemption, but she didn't take advantage of that. There's no indication that she even knew that this was uh, transpiring, but Boaz had the ability to redeem all, and he did of both male heirs. So, again, you've got Elimelech. He's got two boys. Fifty percent of his uh, resources were going to go this way. Fifty percent of his resources were going to go 
uh, to uh, Chilean, and as a, instead of through their through and their wives being part of that, instead Ruth, who has the male heir, that male heir becomes the recipient of all that inheritance. But Boaz had the ability and did here. He redeemed both. He he purchased all the land. And Orpha didn't have any knowledge of that because she had, she had walked away. Christ, when he died on the cross, paid the price for the entire human race. But not everybody is going to be the recipient of that inheritance. Why? Because, like Orpha, some people just simply walk away. Say, hey, that's a good life for you, but that's not a good life for me. And they don't accept. They don't go to the gate and enjoy the benefits of that redemption. They don't come to Christ. They don't, the gate in the Old Testament, but at the New Testament, it's the cross. They don't go to the cross and, and receive the benefit of redemption that Christ offers because it's too much work. It's going to require a humility on their part. And they, wait, wait, wait a minute. I, Christ, I know you paid the price on Calvary's cross, but I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to be, I don't know, I'm going to be, I'll, be, I'll be religious. I'll get baptized. I'll, I'll do good works. And none of those will pay the price of redemption. It had to be the blood of an innocent. The only person that had the ability to do that was Jesus Christ. The only person that you're going to receive salvation from is Jesus Christ. You're not going to get there by your church membership. You're not going to get there by being friends of the preacher. You're not going to get there by coming to church or being a member of a church. You're going to get there by one way and one way only, and that's the shed blood of Jesus Christ, or you're not going to get there anyway. And say, well, what, 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 what if I didn't know? Well, what if you didn't? But now you do. Will you come to Christ? I, many of you would say, yeah, I came to Christ for that redemption when I was 10, when I was 11, when I was 22, when I was 42. And you would tell about a time when you came to know Christ. I was 19 years of age. And I realized I had a sin problem, and I needed redemption. I was in the library, got down on my knees, and trusted Jesus Christ to be my Redeemer, to pay the price for my sin, to be my Savior. Mrs. Bishop trusted Christ as her Savior in vacation Bible school when uh, she was a a, a junior age young person. My dad was... uh, uh, in his uh, early uh, teen years, he was in a revival service. He was sitting uh, in the back of a fourth, uh, fourth or fifth person in uh, on a Thursday night uh, when he trusted Christ as his Savior. Thomas, biblical Thomas, was in the upper room in John chapter 20 when he accepted Christ. Who was Thomas? Thomas, had a, he was a man that was, uh, followed Christ. Thomas was a man that had been baptized, some say, by Jesus Christ. That's pretty good baptism. But baptism will not save you. 
And in the end, when Christ had been crucified in John, uh, John chapter 20, the disciples went to him and said, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. He is risen, as he said. Thomas said, I will not believe unless I can feel the nail prints and the place where the sword pierced his side. I will not believe. I will not. But that next Sunday, Thomas came to church. And Jesus came into the room and knew what he had said the week before. And Jesus said to Thomas, reach hither thy hand and behold my hand. Reach hither thy hand and behold my side. And be not faithless, but believing. Uh, Thomas prayed the absolute worst prayer for salvation in John chapter 20. Five words. My Lord and my God. But what was he saying? In that he was saying, I believe that you are the Redeemer. I believe that you paid the price. I believe that you are the solution to sin. And I place my faith and trust in you, my Lord and my God. Those five words said all that needed to be said when it came to his salvation. People claim a lot of things that just don't make a lot of sense. Robert Withington, 57 years of age in Bridgeport, Connecticut, this week got himself into a little bit of trouble. He was walking into the bank and he looked down on the, on the ground and there laid a bank bag. It had $5,000 in cash. And uh, he, uh, he picked that up, and he put that in his bag, and he didn't go into the bank anymore. He turned around and went home. He was counting his money, $5,000. There was $5,000 in cash. There were deposit slips. Uh, there was a name on the outside of the bag that told who the bag belonged to, and he, he took it home. Well, uh, the person making the deposit in the bank, when they got to the teller, they re- realized that it was gone. And so they retraced their steps and they couldn't find it. And well, they pulled up the, they knew it when, they knew they had it when they got out of the car, but they didn't have it when they got to the teller window. So they pulled up the security footage of the bank. And so they see this guy reaching up, sticking his jacket and walking home. So they went to him and they said, uh, you picked up a bag with $5,000 cash. And he claimed the legal doctrine of Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. <clears throat> That's what he said. And that is not a good, sound legal doctrine. What, had, what was it? It was fraud. Now, the person that he was stealing from was the tax assessor. The tax assessor had $5,000 in receipts for the day. And we do this in Fairfax County as well. They called for a police escort because it's county money, right? And so the police go there and escort escorted this guy uh, to the bank. And so the police knew he had the bag when he got out. The police officer walked in as he said, it's gone, and uh, whoa, so what do we do? So the police were already there, uh, the, uh, the, loss, the guy with the loss was there, and they know who's got the bag. And they said, listen, it's got the county, uh, it's got county name on the outside of the bag. It's got the receipt uh, inside that says who it belongs to. It, it, that, that's not your money. Uh, you can't have that. And so they prosecuted him for theft. And he felt led of the uh, of uh, probably a lot of motivations to write out a check and give that back to the county and so they they dropped the charges and that and that's a smart thing <clears throat> why he wasn't entitled to it it wasn't his it's not a good legal doctrine lots of people they claim things for salvation all kinds of things people say i'm going to get to heaven by 
and they say something else besides Jesus Christ. That's not going to work. So here's my question. Has there been a time when you've been redeemed, when you've come to Christ and received that gift? He loves you. He's willing to do it, but he's not going to force himself on you. If there's never been a time, you need to make time. Because standing before God someday and saying, you know, I just didn't have the time, is not a good defense. Saying, I, I didn't, I know you paid the price, but I was trying to do all these other things to do it on my own, because I want to be my own man, is, is not a good courtroom position to be in. The only courtroom position that is going to satisfy the sin problem is to come to Redeemer. Jesus Christ. He loves you. Have you come to him? If not, will you come to him? Will you bow your heads and close your eyes? Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. You say this morning, preacher, I know Jesus Christ is my Savior, but I'm, a, I'm like a limelight. I, there's some bitterness going on inside. Angry. Some disappointment. Would you pray for me this morning? I just, I just, I just need some prayer this morning. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just struggling a little bit, and I need your prayer. And I'll pray for you this morning. Okay. Father, I thank you for folks that know you as their Savior, but they're, they're just struggling. And truth be told, at some point or another, every single one of us will struggle. And I'm thankful uh, to be a friend uh, to these folks and to be uh, a co-laborer with them. And to be able to bow my head and my heart this morning and to pray for them. Father, I love them and I know that you love them. And I pray that you would help them and encourage them and help them to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And to know that uh, you uh, will not fail them. With every head bowed and every eye closed, you're here this morning. But you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You never come to him for redemption. But this morning, God is speaking to your heart. Say, preacher, would you pray for me? I need to be saved. I just need to be redeemed. Slip your hand up. Hold it up for just a moment. Let me pray for you. Let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed and eyes closed. The piano is playing. The invitation is not going to be long. Just a minute or two. If you want me to pray for you, I'll be glad to do that. If you want to kneel at the altar and pray, you can absolutely do that. You need salvation. I'll be glad to introduce you to the Savior. You obey as God speaks.